You will be shocked this morning, but we're actually turning to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. So, if you would, take your Bibles and make your way to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, in particular, chapter number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Now, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. I don't normally read as part of our initial reading all of the verses that we'll be studying, but uh, today will be an exception. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as, as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things of God, judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any, seem, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. We are continuing this morning a forensic investigation of the head covering, we venture now into part three, an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, and specifically verses 2 through 16. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we can be in your house today. We rejoice in you. We thank you for the salvation that we have that was purchased uh, on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in time you convinced us of our sin and led us to repent and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all works of your grace for which you get the honor and glory. Lord, today as we investigate this uh, Bible topic, Lord, help us to approach it with an open mind according to what the Spirit would have for us, that we would be as the Bereans and search the Scriptures to see whether or not what we hear, what we say is true that we not just take the writings of men and uh, use those as the basis for our belief, but that we would truly desire to know 
what these verses teach and that you by your Holy Spirit would lead us to a right interpretation and a right application. Lord, help us to pay attention that you might receive the honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have recently started this series of messages in, in which we are conducting a forensic investigation of the head covering. We want to look at ev- evidence, biblical evidence, that would teach us what 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16, is actually teaching. We pose the question, what evidence is there that's available to us to determine what this passage of Scripture teaches? Now, in our series, so far we have presented part one, which dealt with an explanation for the study. Why are we even studying this? Then last week we moved into part two, in which we provided an exegetical framework. We are simply saying that we want to employ proper hermeneutical methods to rightly interpret all scripture, but specifically this scripture. And so today, we have finally made it to this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Now our goal here is to dissect correctly the divine message, right? That's what we're told, uh, as Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. We want to dissect this, this passage to come to a proper meaning. And so, in order to do so, we are today going to begin applying what we studied last week, and of course we've studied this in the past as well, we want to apply sound hermeneutical principles, right? Hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation. We want to apply those principles in helping us determine what is being taught in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. As we've pointed out multiple times throughout the years, and certainly last week we stressed this, We want to uh, conduct an exegesis on this particular passage. In other words, we want to attempt to derive understanding from the passage. We don't want to read into it what we think it says. We don't want to approach it having already determined, yep, I know what this means and I'm only going to try to find verses or explanations that support what I believe. Nope. We want to honestly come to the Scripture. We want to admit shortcomings where they're there with our interpretation, problems with our interpretation, and we ultimately want to honor and glorify the Lord. Remember I said from the get-go, I don't want to approach this from a prideful or arrogant attitude. I don't want to uh, try to attempt anybody to change what they believe about this topic. But what I do want to do is challenge you to study the Scripture and to make sure that what you believe is actually what's being taught as much as you can derive the understanding from your particular study. And we want to help you do that. And so today we're beginning to conduct an exposition. An exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. uh, Really I'll say verse 1 through verse 16. And what we're dealing with here is an exposition. That's the title of the message. Part 3, an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verse 1 through 16. Remember last week we revealed to you that as it relates to Bible study, exposition means an explanation, an interpretation. 
a laying open the sense or meaning of an author or any passage in a writing. That's what we want to try to do. Now, in the first message that we uh, presented on this topic, and I stressed this again last week, I warned you that there will be a great deal of de detail, minutia, and definitions in the messages, and that applies again today. And it's just because of the topic that we have before us. If we really want to do this topic justice, and we really want to study it, we have to get into the details. And so we are going to do that today. So, how about this? Let's dive in to the passage. And as we dive into the passage, I want us to focus today, and I will say this, hold on to your seats, but you'll thank me for this next week as well. So we're not going to finish this today. We're going to be looking at this topic next week as well, and I feel that that's appropriate. There are four steps, four steps that help us arrive and provide an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And by the way, I'm just going to shorten that. When I when I talk about what we're looking at, obviously we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 verse 2 through verse 16, but I'm not going to say that every time just to cut down on the, the, the redundancy and the irritant that it might be of hear, you hearing that every time. And so, what are these steps? Okay, the first step, we need to look at the scene at Corinth. We need to look at the scene at Corinth. The second step, we will provide a survey of the book. And when I talk about the book, I'm talking about 1 Corinthians, right? You know that Paul wrote two letters or two epistles to the church at Corinth. This is the first one. We want to we provide a survey of the book. The third step is we must and will search the context. We conduct a search of the context. And then next week, fourthly, we begin a study of the verses, a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And so these are four steps that will help us in providing an exposition of the passage at hand. Now, we begin this morning with this first step, taking a look at the scene at Corinth. The scene at Corinth. It is impossible to properly interpret what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 without at least investigating and knowing a little bit about the history and the culture of Corinth. Now, I did not say that we will use that to form the basis for our belief as to what the passage is teaching. But we must at least examine that and have an understanding. Now, in last week's message in which we provided an exegetical framework for our study, we went over ten rules, ten rules for biblical interpretation. Rule number five, rule number five was, don't forget the literal interpretation and the historical event. In that particular rule, we pointed out that we must apply common sense guidelines in studying the Bible and arriving at an interpretation. We apply common sense guidelines. 
we identify the type of language that is being used, whether it's poetical, figurative, or literal. And then we identify, or after we've identified the type of language, we have to remember, and this is important, we cannot skip over this. Remember that we have to try and determine how people living in Bible days would understand what is being written. Remember, and I think some people forget this, say, oh, the Bible was written to us. Well, hold on a minute. Who was this letter written to? It was written to the church at Corinth. It doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't mean that it's not the Word of God. In fact, of course, you know that it does provide uh, guidelines for living for us, guidelines for our conduct in the Lord's house, and so forth and so on. But the letter was not written to me or to you. It was written by Paul to the church at Corinth. And therefore, if we ever want to understand what is meant by the passage that we're considering in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, we must attempt to understand and determine how the Corinthian church members would understand what Paul is writing. Now, to me, that seems pretty elementary, but you don't often hear that with preachers today. Okay. Now, as we try to determine how the members of the church at Corinth would understand what Paul is writing. To help us do that, we have to take into account, first of all, time, right? What were the customs of the day? What are their forgotten traditions that were practiced by uh, folks at Corinth during that day uh, that we don't practice today? What were the civil conditions? What were the moral conditions in Corinth? We must investigate that. And then secondly, not just time, but science. We must look at the geography uh, of Corinth and what made Corinth Corinth. We must examine these things. It is also important for us to look at the scene at Corinth because we have to remember that there are obstacles that prevent us from arriving at a spontaneous interpretation. What were those obstacles? I gave you four obstacles. There's a historical gap. There is a cultural gap. And yes, there is a philosophical gap that we must consider when we read 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. We have to take into account all of these things. Now, as I pointed out, the book was written to the church at Corinth. In fact, you can turn there if you want, but let me just read to you 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 2, the Bible reads, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth. This letter was written specifically to the members of the church at Corinth. It would be like if someone wrote this church a letter and said to the members of the church at Tabernacle Baptist Church in, in Fairview Heights or wherever it is that you want to say we're located. That's not a letter that's written to Faith Baptist Church or Sovereign Grace Baptist Church or Bible Baptist. It's written to this church. And so if you want to understand the context and the meaning of what's written, you'd have to understand this church, would you not? And that's the point that we're making. It is interesting to note that the word Corinth comes from the Greek word Corinthos, and it literally means an ornament. 
Now, how does that tie into looking at the scene at Corinth? Well, it's important. And we start by, first of all, considering the location of Corinth, ancient Corinth. I'm talking about the Corinth of the Bible. When the Bible says that Paul wrote the church unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, what do we know about Corinth historically? And I'm going to tell you right now, bear with me, stay with me, what we're covering is important to grasp. Corinth was a Greek city. It's a Gentile city. It was located on an isthmus, and lest I, if somebody be listening in on sermon audio, or perhaps we're not familiar with terminology, I always want to be careful to define terms. I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence or anything of that nature, but it's best for us to just be on the safe side. An isthmus was a narrow strip of land bordered on both sides by water. So Corinth was located on an isthmus which joined Peloponnesus. What's Peloponnesus? It's the southern peninsula of Greece. Corinth joined Peloponnesus to the mainland of Greece. And so we're talking about a Greek city. It was about 48 miles west of Athens, Greece. It was located at a crossroads of travel and commerce. Because of its location, it served as a major trade thoroughfare and it commanded traffic of both the eastern and the western seas. It was a heavily traveled area. It was heavily populated. Corinth became a cosmopolitan city, a melting pot in which you had Jews and Gentiles and Oriental people of an Oriental background. And so when we think about Corinth, we have to understand that this was a major city, much like we would talk about perhaps Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or London or you make the application. Now, let's think quickly about the history of Corinth, the history. The ancient city of Corinth was destroyed by the Romans in, in 146 B.C. Now, you, you say, why on earth are we talking about this? Bear with me. There's a, there's a purpose behind what we're doing. The city was restored by Julius Caesar somewhere between uh, uh, 44 and 46 B.C. So the Corinth in the Bible is not the ancient Corinth. It is a rebuilt city, a fairly new city in Bible times, that was inhabited by free Roman citizens initially. It was under Roman rule, and it served as the seat of government for southern Greece or Achaia. It had a leading position among all of the Greek cities. So this is not just some suburb outside of a major city. This is a major city that was restored and rebuilt by Julius Caesar. It apparently was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. And because of that, it would serve as the residence of the leader or the proconsul by the name of Gallio. Now we find Gallio mentioned in Acts chapter number 18. Now, in a few moments, we're going to look at Acts chapter number 18 to look at how that Paul came to be in Corinth and how he established the church at Corinth. But in Acts chapter 18 and verse number 12, talking about the context there is Paul being in Corinth, 
we read in Acts chapter 18 and verse number 12 this. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. And so Gallio would have been located in Corinth. And so it's, a, it's a, somewhat of a capital city within the Roman province of Achaia uh, on this Greek island. Now let's talk about the religious views or what we would refer to as the idolatry of Corinth. Corinth was full of idolaters. In fact, 16 times in the book of 1 Corinthians, the word idol or a form of the word idol is used. That's important because Paul knows that the background of the church members, the Gentile church members in Corinth, was that they were prone to idolatry. That's where they came from. In fact, listen to this description as it relates to the religious and idolatrous views of the Corinthians, uh, not just the church members, but I'm talking about the, the city of Corinth. Listen to this. The most prominent site in ancient Corinth and the important, uh, important to the religion of the ancient Greeks was the Temple of Apollo. However, there were many others, including temples of Asclepius and Hermes, shrines of Athena and Poseidon, and sanctuaries of Zeus, Apollo, Jupiter, and Hera. Of course, statues of the gods and heroes adorned just about every public thoroughfare in space and included a bronze Poseidon, a bronze Apollo, and a statue of Aphrodite. There are two bronze standing images of Hermes and images of Zeus. Now, why do we, why, why do we need to bring this out? When you begin reading the book of 1 Corinthians, you've got to understand the background. And you got to understand that this is where these people lived, and this is what the Lord saved them from. In fact, we read a passage in just a few moments that will reveal that. And so the, the, the city Corinth was full of idolaters. And this idolatry was tied to sexual immorality. We know that that's often the case, but it was particularly the case here in Corinth. So again, listen to this quote. The Greek religion in ancient Corinth also included the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation. Aphrodite was worshipped in her magnificent sanctuary on the top of the Acrocorinth. The sanctuary included images of an armed Aphrodite, Helios and Eros equipped with bow. The worship of Aphrodite promoted wantonness and decadence, which guaranteed that a steady stream of inheritance, adherence would make the effort to clamor up the Acrocorinth to participate. According to Strabo, a first century Greek geographer, philosopher, and historian, 1,000 courtesans, now stop there for a moment, do you know what a courtesan is? It's a prostitute. It's a prostitute. 1,000 courtesans were available to attract visitors, which also ensured the riches of the sanctuary. In this respect, public prostitution was integrated within Corinthian religion and culture to the extent that it was not uncommon to hear public prayers that appealed to the gods for more prostitutes. Now that's egregious, is it not? And yet it's important for us to know that about Corinth especially when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And you say, well, how? Well, you're going to have to wait for that until we actually get into dissecting the verses. Now, 
Do you know who else they worshipped in Corinth? Venus. Venus was the Roman goddess of love, maternal care, sexual reproduction, and erotic desire. Venus was the Roman version of the Greek version of Aphrodite. Okay? Listen to this about Venus. The loveliest of all deities, Venus desired, almost like they're wording it like this was a person, Venus desired and was desired by mortals and gods alike. Like the Greek Apollo, Venus had a fluid sexuality and embraced male and female lovers alike. She was also the guardian of lovers and prostitutes and a major figure in Roman religion. Venus was adapted from the Greek goddess Aphrodite, with whom she shared a mythological tradition. So, we're talking about the religion and the idolatry that was prominent, prominent in Corinth, and we'll come back to that in our study. Now let's shift our attention to the lifestyles that were practiced in Corinth. And I'm just going to again, I've been reading you some quotes this morning because I don't want you to think that it's me just coming up with this material, right? Here's a quote from Easton's Bible Dictionary as it relates to the lifestyles that were practiced in Corinth. He talks about Corinth and he writes, Corinth was noted for its wealth and for the luxurious and immoral and vicious habits of the people. It had a large mixed population of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. The American Tract Society Dictionary records this. Corinth thus became one of the most populous and wealthy cities of Greece. But its riches produced pride, ostentation, effeminacy, and all the vices generally consequent on plenty. Now I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what we have recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. In Corinth, it was popular for men to be effeminate. And it was popular for many prostitutes to be on the prowl. Okay? We as Christians would say what? Well, it'd be certainly improper and sinful for any believer to be involved in those activities or much less look like they're involved in those activities. Okay? Then let, let me read on with uh, the American Tract Society Dictionary's uh, entry here on Corinth. Lasciviousness particularly was not only tolerated but consecrated here by the worship of Venus and the notorious prostitution of numerous attendants devoted to her. But though it soon regained its ancient splendor, it also relapsed into all its former dissipation and licentiousness. Now that, is, that quote is important for one reason. What ancient Corinth was, the new Corinth became. You'll read some commentators and some people that will say, well, that was practiced in ancient Corinth, but not in the new Corinth. Everything that I can find seems to indicate that the new Corinth was just as sinful and wicked as the old Corinth. And that's important for us to know. In fact, the city was so known for its pervasive sexual sins that a Greek term for fornication actually named the city in it. Like, so the Greek word, Corinthia zomai, literally means fornication or to act like a Corinthian and it, re it referred to sexual impurity. So the very name of Corinth is used in this Greek term. Now the problem of sexual immorality to include, and forgive me, we're, we're, we're adults, right? The problem of sexual immorality to include incest, 
adultery and fornication, even among Corinthian church members, was at some point apparent and prevalent, right? Watch this. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Specifically, look at verse number 1 and verse number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5 verses 1 and 2. It is reported commonly that there is fornication, or the Greek word porneia, from which we get our word porn, porn or pornography. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named amongst the Gentiles, what is it that one should have his father's wife? And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Look, man, I don't need to get into specifics. You know what's being talked about here. It is a gross sexual immoral sin. And you know what the Corinthian church had done about it? Absolutely nothing. And Paul is writing in a sense to rebuke them and say, look, this guy needs to be disciplined from the church so that repentance might be wrought in his heart that he might repent of this and be brought back into a right relationship with the church now we find in second corinthians that that actually took place the point is that this is a member of the church and this is the sexual immorality that's taken place let's now turn one chapter forward to first corinthians chapter number six watch first corinthians chapter number six and let's Notice, begin reading in verse number 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now stop there. Don't read ahead. Why is Paul addressing these particular sins? Effeminate, adulterers, fornicators. Why is he addressing those specific sins? You know why? Because they were prevalent in the city of Corinth and they were at some point prevalent in the lives of the members of the church at Corinth. And you know how we know that? Because verse 11 says, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, uh, skip down to verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, through the end of the chapter. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What is Paul addressing? He's addressing sins that were prevalent in Corinth 
and that had affected the lives of the members of the church at Corinth. And he's saying, you know what? Yes, you make up a ch- the individual members make up corporately a church, the church. But your uh, behavior is to be regulated not just while we meet for services, but every day and every moment of the week. We don't come into the house of God and act like everything's okay, and the rest of the week we're out being a whoremonger or effeminate or being a drunkard or whatever. Paul is clearly not saying that. He's saying you're bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify, by your, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. There's a way that you should act as a church member, not just when the church meets, but every day of your life. Don't act like the Corinthians. That's what he's saying. That's what he's writing. Okay? J. Sidlow Baxter, who wrote a, a work on a survey of Scripture, uh, I would recommend it. I think it's good. I probably wouldn't agree with everything that he writes, but it's a good resource. He wrote, It is only fair to remember that those Cor- Corinthian converts had been born and bred in surroundings which were about as vile and vicious as could be imagined. Take the following description of Corinth. Amongst the great provincial cities of the empire, Corinth was the most central and was affected by all the various currents of the age. Standing on Grecian soil, it was a Roman colony founded by Julius Caesar, the seat of Roman government and Greek commerce. For profligacy, or shameless, reckless extravagance, the city had an infamous notoriety. Here, vice was raised into a religion, and the idolaters of Corinth are fitly set between fornicators and idolaters. You think it's important for you to understand the background of Corinth? If you're going to interpret 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, it's of utmost importance. You've got to understand what's going on in the city. You got to understand the background of these church members. This was a wicked city. Listen to this final quote, and I will. Uh, w- then we'll move on to step number two. One writer described Corinth in this way: "It is a sea man's paradise, a drunkard's heaven, and a virtuous woman's hell." And when he talks about being a sea man's paradise, you know what he's talking about. You come in from port and you got women all over the place that you can satisfy your lusts and desires on. That was Corinth. If we're ever going to conduct an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we better do our due diligence. We better put in the foundational legwork to dig and study what Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. Who were these members? What was Corinth like? We have to understand, first of all, the scene at Corinth. There's a second step. That involves conducting a survey of the book. We must also know something of the book that Paul writes. Not just about... It's not imperative that we just know about Corinth, the city... But we must also know something about the book. And remember, this is the first of two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Now again, I will invoke Rule 7 from what we studied last week in giving you an exegetical framework for our study. Rule number 7 dealt with understanding context. And when we understand context, we understand what goes before and what follows after. In understanding context, We have to basically question 
what the intent of the book is. What is the purpose of 1 Corinthians? What is the theme? What is the main thrust of 1 Corinthians? Well, how do we know that? We conduct a survey of the book. We ask secondary questions. To whom was this book written? When was it written? Why was it written? Where did Paul write it? How did Paul speak when he wrote? All of these things are critical. And we must remember that in 1 Corinthians, what is the overarching theme of 1 Corinthians? Here it is. The danger of divisions in a local church. The danger of divisions in a local church. Now let's think about some background information about the book. We're talking about step number two, a survey of the book. Step number one is the scene at Corinth. Step number two is a survey of the book. Let's think about background information of this book. And we already know this, but who's the author? Paul is the author. Paul wrote the book around 55 AD while he was on his third missionary journey. And it was towards his end of a three-year ministry while he was in Ephesus. We studied the city of Ephesus, when we conducted a, a, a multi-year study of the book of Ephesians, right? And so now we study the, the book of 1 Corinthians, in particular chapter number 11. Now Paul wrote the book during that time frame, but Paul actually established the church at Corinth. And he established the church on Corinth during his second missionary journey. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter number 18. Acts chapter number 18. I read you Acts chapter number 18, verse number 12 earlier in the message. Now we want to consider Acts chapter number 18, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens. So he's in Greece, right? He departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because we, he was of the same craft, he abode with them, and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit, and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So what do we see in these verses? Well, we see that Paul was there, ministering in the synagogues, preaching and teaching, and the Lord saved those that were Jews and those that were Gentiles. Paul was there for 18 months. 
After he left, we find that there's the influence of the wicked city of Corinth that had crept in amongst the church members. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. What was the makeup of the church? In other words, was he writing just to Jews? Was he writing just to Gentiles? No, he was writing to a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And remember, when you see the word Greeks, he was speaking to the Greeks. It's talking about Gentiles. The Greeks were Gentiles. So the church had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and it seems that primarily the Gentiles made up a larger portion of the membership. We find this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse 2, Paul writing there about spiritual gifts, he writes to the church and he says, Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Well, we know that not all of them were Gentiles, based upon what we just read in Acts chapter number 18, but it does seem as though the majority of the membership were Gentiles with Jews prevalent as well. Now that's important. Because the Jews had one manner of living and the Gentiles had another, did they not? In fact, the word of God is very clear that the Jews had a civil law, a ceremonial law as well, as to how they were to live. That did not apply to the Gentiles. So that's important for us to know. So we consider the author of the book and then the purpose of the book. What, what really instigates Paul's writing to the church at Corinth? Well, we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, look at verse 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 10, 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Why is Paul writing this book? After he had left, been, been there 18 months, he establishes the church, he moves on, he learns of problems within the church. There are divisions within the church. What is the main problem in Corinth? Now, I'm not talking about symptoms. I'm talking about the main problem. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? The problem is that they were carnal. They were fleshly and worldly. Because they were fleshly and worldly, their practice, both while the church was assembled and in their daily living, was not pleasing unto God. Is that not the truth? Look at, look at issues and problems that we've had at Tabernacle Baptist Church. You can always go back to a root problem. What is the root problem? It isn't, well, this person didn't believe that way or they didn't believe it. You can go back and find a root problem. And, and that's what we must do. The members were having a hard time living the Christian life while they were still in Corinth. That's the, that's the crux of the matter. 
So in order to help with that, Paul writes this epistle. He, first of all, identifies the true problems in the church. Secondly, he provides guidance on correcting the problems. And then thirdly, he exhorts the church to walk spiritually and not carnally. That's what he's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. That's the background of the book. But now think quickly about an outline of the book. We have to, again, remember that these writings are coherent. And there's order in the Word of God. And so, in chapters 1 through 4, we see divisions in the church. In chapters 5 and 6, we see the defilements of God's children. In chapters 7 through 16, which, by the way, is exactly where the passage that we're considering in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 falls, there we deal with, Paul deals with diverse Christian issues. Diverse Christian issues. And then lastly, chapter number 16, he deals with departing comments. Departing comments. That's an outline of the book. Now, what's the major theme? We've already talked about it. The importance of unity and order in the church. Now, in order to communicate this, what are some of the key words that the Apostle Paul uses? Well, the word body, which we know is a metaphor for the church, is used 45 times in the book. That's a huge amount for 16 chapters. The word church, or a form of the word church, is used 22 times. And so, obviously, the focus is on the body. The word wisdom is used 18 times. Charity, 12 times. Love, another 5 times. Idol, or a form of idol, or idolatry, 16 times. And the word fornicate, or a form of the word fornicate, 11 times. Now just looking at those key words can give you an idea of what this book is about. So Paul knows about Corinth. He gets these problems reported back to him that there's divisions in the church. How's he going to deal with this? He writes this epistle to help the church deal with these divisions and problems. And now we're going to turn our attention to the third step, and I'll cover this quickly, I trust, and we'll be done. The third step is that we must conduct a search of the context. A search of the context. So step number one, the scene at Corinth. Step number two, uh, a survey of the book. Step number three, a search of the context. Now here we're still under rule seven. Understanding the context. What goes before and what follows after. We have to weigh how Paul's words fit into the entire book. In other words, what he writes in chapter number 11 cannot contradict his other writings, right? Not only in this book, but certainly in all of Paul's writings. And remember, we mentioned this last week. In our final analysis, it is context that really determines the meaning. And I gave you an illustration of that last week. Last week. So how does context under, help us understand what 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 teaches? How do Paul's words before and after help us examine the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11? Well, we begin by the immediate context. The immediate context. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not there, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. What's the immediate context? Well... Paul identifies a problem. He identifies a problem. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 
Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now watch verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. What follows in verses 4 through 16, he is supplementing dealing with the problem. What's the problem? Remember, we have to identify the main problem. What is he writing about in chapter number 11? What is the problem Paul is identifying? It is clearly a problem with biblical headship. It is a problem with God's order. And the problem was that there were members that were apparently. And I say apparently because all we have to deduce that is what's written here in the Bible. Okay, so so apparently there is a member or that there is a problem with the members accepting biblical headship and practicing biblical headship. That's the problem. That's the context. The context is on the larger issue of biblical headship. Do you know whatever your view is on the head covering? Okay, if you say that it's an external cloth object that you put on the top of your head, ladies, or if you say that it's your long hair, or if you say it's a veil that covers your head completely, do you know that whatever your view is on that, you could have that right and still not believe in the doctrine of biblical headship or practice it? That external, that external sign does not mean in your heart that you have submitted or acquiesced to the doctrine of biblical headship and that you're willing to practice it. That too is important for us to remember because he is not focusing on an external symbol of headship. He is focusing on headship. That's the context. That's the immediate context. We will define headship in coming messages when we cover each of the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. That's the immediate context. An identified problem, and I think of an ironic application. I'm going to make this statement. See what you think of this. Biblical order, as it applies to the headship, the teaching of headship, does not apply only when the church meets together for public worship. Would you agree with that statement? Why is the focus then on when the church meets? See, because if the if the biblical uh, if your if your reception of biblical headship and your practice of that which lends itself to biblical headship is not right outside of the church, just because you come into the church and you put something on top of your head does not solve the problem that you have with biblical headship. These are issues that are not applicable only when the church meets together for public worship. Individual members constitute the church and our behavior is to be regulated by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Scriptures at all times. Not just when the church meets for public worship. There is an assumption that Paul is only talking here and writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 about when the church meets for public worship. And I say this with, 
with, with all love in my heart. Prove it. Where does it say that in the scripture? Paul never transitions in chapter number 11 to issues only while the church meets. Biblical headship is to be received and practiced and embraced at all times, not just when the church meets. A problem in public worship is only a symptom of other issues. Now think about this. Those of you that have any issues of leadership in your secular job at all, okay? You have somebody that's doing a poor job. What do you do? You examine why they're doing a poor job. Do you know that they could be doing a poor job because they think they should be in charge and they're not going to submit to your leadership? They're going to rebel and be disobedient. Is that a possibility? It is. But you know what else is just as much a possibility? Hold on to your seats. They might not know how to do what they're supposed to do. See, we all the time make this assumption that, well, they're not doing their job, so they're rebellious and they're, they, they, don't, they don't want to be here and they're trying to stick it to me. Maybe they don't know how to do what they're supposed to do. Maybe they don't even know what they're supposed to do. And that's not their fault. That's your fault if you're the leader. The point I'm making is this. When you are diagnosing a problem, you don't just look at the symptoms of the problem. The la- Let me put it this way. We read this verse, oh, well, it's very clear. The ladies are not wearing a, a, an external head covering on their head. So to solve the problem of biblical headship, we're just going to say, put something on your head. And you know, as well as I do, that that doesn't resolve the problem. What is the problem and why do they have the problem? The problem is biblical headship. Not that that's a problem doctrine, but their reception and receiving of it and not submitting to it. This is why Paul started off uh, his, his, his thoughts here. And we might say he concluded and transitions into another line of thought. In verse number one, he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Follow the Apostle Paul's teaching as he follows the Lord. That's the immediate context of what's being spoken here. So whatever interpretation we arrive at in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, we got to remember the overriding problem, the immediate context. It is that these members were for some reason, apparently, because Paul thought he needed to address it, apparently they were not embracing biblical headship. That's the context. Now, as we talk about context, we also talk about what goes before. Remember that we're not supposed to allow chapter and verse breaks to deter our context. So Paul had just finished a passage starting in chapter number 8, verse number 1, and concluding with chapter number 11 and verse number 1, dealing with Christian liberty. That's what is immediately prior to him addressing the doctrine here of biblical headship and their problems with biblical headship. The Corinthian members had literally, and you can go back to chapter number 7 and verse number 1 where there were some members that had posed some questions to the Apostle Paul. And apparently one of those questions was this, and I'm summarizing or paraphrasing. The Corinthian members wanted to know this. May we, as members of this church and as saved individuals, 
May we eat meat that has been offered in sacrifice to idols. That's the question that they're asking. Go back. We're not going to take the time to do it this morning, but you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 8 and verse number 4. That's literally what is being asked. I'm not eating it as a, a meat offered unto idols, but can I eat this meat that has been offered unto idols? In answering that question, we're talking about context, right? What goes before the passage. In that, in answering that question, Paul addresses Christian discipline in chapter number 9 where he says that I got to be under my body I got to be like a boxer that's not just uh, letting his body go to waste but I got to be under my body I got to be trained and ready to fight the fight and run the race he's talking about discipline and then in chapter number 10 he says that what we do in doing what we do we should consider how our actions affect others Okay, so we have Christian liberty we're members, uh, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, you're members that are no longer idolaters and you should live differently because of that. Now watch. And I promise I'm bringing this to a close here. Turn with me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse number 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the devils and not to God, and I would not that you should have fellowship with the devils. He's talking about separation from what they used to do, right? Then notice verse 24. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles that eat, that's talking about the marketplace, asking no question for conscience's For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go, whosoever, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience's but if any man say unto you, This is offered and sacrificed unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the others. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Now watch. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Do you see what he's saying? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether you eat the meat or not. Whatsoever you do, do as unto the Lord. But also remember that you ought to be considerate of others and, your, and how your actions affect others. And I think it's very telling in verse number 32 that he says that we're to give not offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. They were members of this church. What they did outside of the church could cause offense to the church just as much as what they did while they were in the public worship services. So this is what goes before. Now let's think about what follows after. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Let's, we've already read verse, verse uh, 1 through 16. Now quickly, quickly, let's read verses 17 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verse 17 through 20. Now in this that I declare unto you, what he's, in other words, what he's about to say. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, now watch these words. That ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, 
when ye come together in the church. Now, wait a minute. Do you see what's happening here? Do you understand that Paul is now shifting his attention to when the church publicly comes together? If he's shifting his attention to when the church publicly comes together, how is it that what he wrote in the preceding verses only apply to when the church comes together? You've got to look at what he wrote after. He clearly is shifting the thought. When you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must be also heresies or divisions among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you, when ye come together therefore into one place. This is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul is dealing with matters that are affecting church unity. He has now shifted his attention to when they get together and they meet. And he's saying that you, church at Corinth, have been guilty, I believe, later on in the chapter, of perverting the Lord's Supper and misapplying what was practiced in those days, and we will get there culturally, what was known as the love feast or the charity feast. Like when we have a meal together. There there are guidelines that are to govern that. And their own preferences and their own practices were affecting the church. Look at verses 21 and 22. For in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God? And shame them that have not. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's saying that if you're going to practice this way, you you should just eat at home. Don't even have this supper in the Lord's church. Now, does that mean, is he teaching here by these words, that it's improper for, for us to have a fellowship meal together? I don't think so. I think he's dealing, hold on to your seats, with a specific problem that the church at Corinth had. And because he was dealing with a specific problem that the church at Corinth had, he gave a specific way of dealing with that problem. If you're going to pervert the Lord's Supper and turn it into some big, massive meal where some people don't have anything to eat and others are stuffed full, you might as well just eat at home and not even bring that into the church. That's what he's saying. Their own preferences and their own practices were affecting the church. They were not to be living unto themselves, but they were supposed to sacrifice some of their rights, both personally and corporately, for the good of the Lord's church. And because they were carnal, and because they were fleshly, and because their previous manner of living in this wicked city of Corinth was still affecting them, Paul is writing about how to resolve that. Now, I have lied to you, and I confess. I have taken much longer than what I anticipated. I'm sorry about that. We'll talk about how we'll deal with that once we, once we dismiss. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing my best to try to limit this, man. It's, it's, this, is, this is hard. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't want to be accused of flippantly handling this subject. I want to, I want to do my due diligence. And I want you to have a proper basis. We might go through this study, and at the end of the study, you say, well, well Brother Mel, I appreciate all that you've done, but I don't, I don't agree with you. And then we part ways never to speak again. No, I'm kidding. It's okay. That's all right. It's okay if that's the case. 
But at least I want you to say, man, I've really, I've devoted myself, I've studied this, and what I come up with is what I really believe the Bible teaches. And if we can do that at the end of the day, that's Christ exalting and God honoring. Okay? We looked at three of the four steps to help us in providing an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. We considered the scene at Corinth. We looked at a survey of the book. And then lastly, we conducted a search of the context. Next week, Lord willing, we will get into a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 2 through 16, a study of the verses. May God give us wisdom, grace, and strength to study the scriptures daily, to see whether those things are so, and to rightly divide the word of truth that we might honor the Lord. Let's pray.